We begin here a new chapter in our study of the covenants of God with his people. We've studied God's covenant with Adam and Eve in the garden, God's covenant with Adam and Eve after the fall, God's covenant with Noah, God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with Israel at Sinai, and God's covenant with David. And now we come to the last of the covenants talked about in the scriptures, and that is the new covenant. I want to divide our study of this new covenant into two parts. First of all, I want to look at this new covenant from the perspective of the prophets. And the prophets we're going to be looking at are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, Hosea, and Malachi. And then in the second part of our study, I want to look at this new covenant from the perspective of the New Testament, and we'll be looking at the Gospels, at Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Hebrews, and Revelation. This time, in this session, we're going to be talking about three passages in the prophet Isaiah. Those three passages are Isaiah 42, verse 6, where the Lord says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Chapter 49, verse 8, where we read this. Bring Chapter 49, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, and in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. And then finally, in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 10, where the prophet says this, For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. But as we look at these passages, the context of the passages is also important. Especially in the first two of those passages, we find that the context speaks of the servant of the Lord. And this concept is an important concept in the prophecy of Isaiah. There are a number of servant passages, and we want to call your attention to those briefly anyway. First of all, the term servant of the Lord is used with respect to Isaiah himself in chapter 20, verse 3. And this is actually quite a common title for Uh, God's prophets, and even other of his anointed servants in the Old Testament. We are uh, accustomed to hearing that term applied to the people of God, but is sometimes used in a special way for those who are anointed of God to serve him in specific capacities. And so we find it used of the prophets, we find it used of the kings, for example, even of the priests and the Levites. And in the New Testament, also we find the same thing. We are all servants of God in the broadest sense of the word. But Paul 
using the term in a very specific and narrower sense, calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ, and he's speaking of his apostleship. So there is this emphasis in the term, sometimes anyway, on the anointing to a special office or a special task in God's kingdom. This same kind of use we find in Isaiah 22, verse 20, where the word is applied to Eliakim, and God says he will lay on his shoulder the keys of the house of David. And it's used of David himself in Isaiah 37, verse 35. So in all those places, it's used of specific persons who held office of some sort, important office of some sort. But the term becomes especially important in the last part of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66. And in this last part of the book of Isaiah, it's used in three different ways. First of all, it designates Israel. There are a number of passages that it refers that we could refer to here, but uh, let's just look first at Isaiah 41 verses 8 and 9. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Notice that twice in those verses, God speaks of this servant as his chosen servant. He is the elect servant. That's also an important theme tied in with this idea of the servant. He is chosen by God, chosen by God to his office, and chosen also from eternity, just as all God's elect are chosen from eternity. That's just one passage out of several that refer to Israel as the servant of the Lord. But later on in this section of Isaiah's prophecy, toward the tail end of the prophecy itself, Isaiah begins to use that term servant in the plural with regard to Israel. So, for example, in chapter 54, verse 17, Isaiah says this, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So that term is used in the plural, and you find that again in a number of passages in the chapters that follow, 56 verse 6, 63 verse 17, 65 verses 8 and 9, 13, 14, and 15, and 66 verse 14. So the first use of the term is with regard to Israel, and it's used sometimes in the singular and sometimes in the plural with regard to the nation of Israel. And several times, it's in parallel with the chosen or the elect. Isaiah 41, verses 8 and 9, Isaiah 43, verse 10, and Isaiah 45, verse 4. Secondly, we find the term used of the prophet. An example of this is chapter 44, verse 26. Chapter 44, verse 26 who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, 
who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places. So that may be a reference to Isaiah, but it may also be a reference to other prophets who spoke the same kinds of things that Isaiah did, Jeremiah, for example. And then finally, the term is used of the Messiah. And here we turn, first of all, to chapter 42, one of the chapters we're interested in, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. But you also find that in this connection, too, this word servant is used with the word chosen. We read a verse that does that. My elect one in whom my soul delights. That's the servant whom the Lord upholds. And in chapter 49, verse 7, the same kind of language. Chapter 49, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. So you have this this elect servant, this chosen servant, and there's clear cases where this uh, word servant appears to, uh, to uh, is applied to, excuse me, the Messiah himself. This is especially true in those great verses about the suffering of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall do deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. And then chapter 53, that famous chapter about the suffering of Christ, is also about the suffering of the servant. He is considered here as the servant of the Lord. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And it's that use of the term, then, that is especially important to us here in our study of the covenant, that this covenant is made with the Lord's chosen servant. Now, there are a number of things that are said about this servant in various places. First of all, going back again to chapter 42, verses 1 and following, it's said of him that he has the Spirit, verse 1, that he will save the Gentiles, verses 1 and 6, that he opens blind eyes and brings prisoners from uh, prison, verse 7, that he establishes new things, verse 9. And then in other chapters, he was formed from the womb, 49, verse 5. He will bring Israel back, that's also in 49, verse 5. He will be glorious. He will suffer and bear the sin of many, that chapter 53, verse 11, which we just read. So many things are said about this servant. But we're going to focus our attention then on that new covenant of God, 
that verses uh, 1 to 9 of chapter 42, or 1 to 7 of chapter 42, talk about. Verses 1 to 4 are kind of a description of what this servant uh, will do and who this servant is. The Lord upholds him. He's the elect one in whom his soul delights. He will put, God will put his spirit upon him, but then he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. So, those verses, the first four verses, are about him. And then in verses 5 to 7, we have the Lord's word to him. Verses 1 to 4, about him. Verses 5 to 7, the Lord's word to him. And this is the Lord's calling to him. That calling is a calling in righteousness. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. Verse 6. It's a calling then that comes to him in righteousness and a calling for him to work in the sphere of righteousness. And in fact, that word righteousness is very important throughout this last part of the book of Isaiah also. If you look up that word in a concordance and follow it through these chapters, you'll see that again and again this word righteousness comes up. And it has to do, first of all, with the righteous God the righteous God who calls his servant. It has to do also with the righteousness of the servant. As we saw in Isaiah 53, verse 11, my righteous servant. And it has to do with that righteousness of the servant as given to his own. My righteous servant shall justify many. uh, Isaiah 53, verse 11 says, and that word justify comes from the same root as the word righteous. So it's the righteousness of the Lord given to his righteous servant, and that righteous servant uh, giving that righteousness of the Lord to his own people. Righteousness, then, is a very important concept, and that righteousness means justification, what we talk about so often here in the New Testament, as justification by faith through Jesus Christ. That's what this last part of the uh, Isaiah's prophecy is about. It's a, an important theme in this prophecy of Isaiah, the justification of God's people. The Lord gives this servant strength. The Lord preserves him from his enemies. But also, and here's where we get to the main point that we want to make from Isaiah 42, the Lord makes him a covenant of the people. The Lord makes him a covenant of the people. Now, what that means, I think, it's a very uh, strong language, is that All the blessings of the covenant are bound up in this servant of the Lord. In his comment on this passage, uh, um, Edward Young says this about that um, phrase, I will make you a covenant of the people. It's on page 120. 
That the servant is identified with the covenant, of course, involves the idea of his being the one through whom the covenant is mediated, but the expression implies more. In form, it is similar to our Lord's, I am the resurrection and the life, or the phrase in 49 verse 6, to be my salvation. To say that the servant is a covenant is to say that all the blessings of the covenant are embodied in, have their root and origin in, and are dispensed by him. At the same time, he he is himself at the center of all these blessings, and to receive them is to receive him, for without him there can be no blessings. Such language could not apply to Israel, but only to one who may truly be designated a covenant. There is thus gradation in the description of the servant. Moses was a mediator of the covenant, but the servant is the covenant. In New Testament terms, this means that they to whom God sovereignly bestows the grace of salvation receive the servant himself. That is, they receive not only the many blessings that are associated with the covenant, but they receive the servant himself. So he is a covenant of the people. And when you look uh, at this passage again, then you see that there is a, an emphasis in this passage on him being a covenant, not just of the people of Israel, but of the Gentiles. In verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. In verse 4, the coastlands shall wait for his law. And in verse uh, 6, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, and that's probably a reference to uh, the Jews, Judah, as a light to the Gentiles. And in both of these capacities, if we can describe them even as separate capacities, he will open blind eyes, bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. So this is another theme that we find throughout this last part of the prophecy of Isaiah, as well as in many other Old Testament scriptures, that the Lord, through his servant, is going to bring salvation to the Gentiles. He's going to open the eyes of the blind, also among the Gentiles. He's going to bring Gentiles from the dungeon. He's going to bring them out of darkness to light and liberty. This is the saving work of the servant of the Lord. And this is the covenantal work of that one who is a covenant of the people. So in this passage, Isaiah 42 then, Christ is the chosen servant who becomes the light of God and the covenant of God. And he is that to both Jews and Gentiles. The salvation of the Gentiles is an important part of this new covenant. So Isaiah includes in his description of the servant of the Lord and his work, not just the return of Israel from captivity, but he speaks of that in such terms as makes clear that he sees farther into the future. He sees into the New Testament itself and to the salvation of the Gentiles. So that about 
Isaiah chapter 42. Let's turn now to Isaiah 49. And the relevant verses here in chapter 49 are verses 1 to 13. When we look at those verses, beginning with verse 1, we find language that is similar to the language used in chapter 42. But the language that is used here is not language that we find in the mouth of the Lord himself. In chapter 42, the Lord was calling his servant. But here in chapter 49, that similar language is found in the mouth of the servant. Now, the servant is now describing himself and his work in the terms that the Lord himself used in Isaiah 42. Listen to what he says. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, and note that it's not just the singular servant, the Messiah, but Israel also. You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just, and you could substitute the word righteous there, yet surely my righteous reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And it's then in that context, that the word servant comes in uh, relation to the Messiah himself. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, and here again is the heart of the passage, I think. He's talking to his servant, or the servant is talking about what the Lord said to him and how the Lord called him. And the Lord said to him, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So God said to this servant, the Messiah, giving you the work simply of restoring Israel from the captivity in Babylon is not sufficient. You are too great a servant for that. Your work is going to be uh, to be a light to the Gentile and to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You are my servant to do these things. And it is, and you are therefore the covenant of the people and a light to the Gentiles. And again in verse 7, we find that word servant. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers. This is about the suffering of the Messiah again. Kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. 
So this servant is here speaking about the work the Lord has given him to do as a covenant to the people. Princes will come and worship him because of that work. The Lord preserves him. The Lord makes him a covenant to the people. The Lord, um, through him, restores the earth. And there's a long list of blessings that follow this then that are all couched in the familiar language of blessings in the land of Canaan. But clearly these blessings are spoken of here in a metaphorical way as applying to the Gentiles. So that very briefly is what we find in Isaiah 49. The next passage we want to talk about is Isaiah 54. And here the important verses are verses 1 to 10. Now we have a very different kind of language here in Isaiah 54 than we have in Isaiah 42 and 49. This is not a passage that mentions the title of Christ as being the servant of the Lord. Rather, in this chapter, the Lord speaks to Israel, to Judah, his people. But he speaks to her as his wife, who has been unfaithful to him, and in her captivity is barren. And he promises to this unfaithful wife, who has been alienated from him by her captivity in Babylon, and who has been made barren, children. Let's read the first few verses. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. This, uh, the children of this woman are going to become so numerous that she will have to have larger dwelling places, a larger city, a larger place for them to dwell in. For you shall expand to the right hand and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations." and make the desolate cities inhabited. In fact, the tent of this wife of God is going to extend also into the nations. She is going to inherit the nations, and her children are going to be found among the Gentiles. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth, that's her many sins of idolatry, and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. That's her captivity in Babylon. When the Lord divorced her, that's the kind of language Jeremiah uses in chapter 3. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer." 
For this is like the waters of Noah to me. And here he comes to the idea of the covenant in this chapter. He's talking about to his wife. He's talking about how he's going to bring her back to himself and how she's going to have many children through him. And he promises her his faithfulness. And then he speaks of his covenant with her. So this is covenant in the context of marriage. Context, the context of the marriage between the Lord and his people. And in verse 9, he speaks of first the covenant with Noah. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. So what he's saying there is, I'm going to make my covenant of peace with you, my wife. And when I make that covenant of peace with you, and have mercy on you, and show you my kindness, it will never again depart from you. Just as I swore to Noah that the waters would not again cover the earth, so I have sworn to you that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. As certainly as the mountains will not depart and the hills will not remove, so certainly my kindness shall not depart from you. It's a beautiful passage about God's relationship, covenant relationship with his people. He is her husband, and she his wife. And he promises that he will be faithful to her, that he will not be angry with her any longer, that he will not again remove his kindness from her. And again, in verses 11 and following, he talks about the blessings that will be associated with this covenant. And the blessings that he mentions here are are blessings which uh, the Apostle John Uh, recalls in Revelation 21 when he talks about the new Jerusalem. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. And so on. Again, it's the Lord making covenant with his people, but extending that covenant now from the Jews to the Gentiles, bringing the Gentiles into the sphere of the covenant, telling his wife, Israel of the Old Testament, that she will have her children also among the Gentiles. Now, a couple more things about the prophecy of Isaiah. First of all, another thing that you find as you're going through these last chapters of the book of Isaiah is that there are references to God's covenants prior to this. So, for example, God speaks of the seed, referring back to his promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, verse 15, as well as his promise to Abraham in Genesis 17. There's a reference to the seed, for example, in chapter 43, verse 5. 
Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants, or your seed, from the east, and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him, yes, I have made him. In Isaiah 61, verse 9 as well, Isaiah 61, verse 9, Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles, that is, their seed, and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. In chapter 65, verse 9 also, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servant shall dwell there. And also in chapter 66, verse 22, these are just a few samples of this, the references to the seed. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. So that's one theme, the theme of the seed, which goes back to those prior covenants. A second theme that goes back is the theme of the new creation. We just read a verse, 66 verse 22, that refers to it. As the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. And this new creation is described in a little more detail in chapter 65, verses 17 to 20. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. So you have this theme of the new creation, which goes back to the covenant with Noah. Noah came forth from the ark into a new creation. You have the theme of the land. The theme that you find both with the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. Chapter 49, verse 19, is an example of this. For your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. Or in chapter 57, verse 13. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you, but the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them, but he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. In the first half of Isaiah, there is reference to the king as God spoke to David. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice. Or in chapter 33, verses 17 and 22. 
Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. And going down to verse 22, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. And finally, to the central promise of all the promises of God to his people, I will be your God. This is the heart of his covenant. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10. Fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So what the Lord is saying as he makes all these references to his prior covenants with the people of Israel and with Adam and with Noah and so on, is all these covenants are now bound up in this new covenant. And this new covenant which I am making with you is a covenant which will embrace all those covenants and will be the fulfillment of all those covenants. It will fulfill the promise of the seed. It will fulfill the promise of the new creation. It will fulfill the promise of the land and the promise of kings. And above all, it will fulfill the promise, I will be your God. For the servant of the Lord is Emmanuel, God with us. He is that one son who is given and upon whose shoulders is God's government whose name is Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But there are also new promises, or promises that receive at least greater emphasis here in Isaiah. One of those promises is the promise of the Spirit. Chapter 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. We should think of of Joel, the prophecy of Joel, about the spirit of God being given to all the different people of God, the children and the fathers, the old and the young, the men and women alike. Or chapter 59, verse 21. Another verse that mentions the Spirit. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, my Spirit who is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. We've already indirectly referred to another aspect of the these new promises. And again, this is something that was spoken of to a degree in the old covenants, especially in the covenant of God with Israel at Sinai, the covenant of, of righteousness. But that receives enormous emphasis in the prophecy of Isaiah, that this righteous servant is going to bring righteousness to his people. He will justify many and forgive their iniquities. Besides Isaiah 53, there's Isaiah 45, verse 25. Isaiah 45, verse 25, where we read this. In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And of course, 
in Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12. That beloved passage, rightly beloved passage, about the servant of the Lord. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Our Lord Jesus Christ understood clearly that these prophecies that we've been talking about spoke of him. And in fact, as a man, and as the servant of kings and rulers, he understood that those prophecies were about him and learned about his calling from the Lord by paying attention to those prophecies. He was always looking to the scriptures in all of his life. He looked to the scriptures to answer his enemies. He looked to the scriptures to instruct those who were his followers. But he looked to the scriptures also for himself. He looked to the scriptures, for example, when he cried on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He appropriated Psalm 22 for himself, made the words of Psalm 22, verse 1, his own words. And he did this in many other places as well. He was uh, embracing those Old Testament scriptures as scriptures about himself, as instruction for himself, as his own understanding of what the Lord had made him and what the Lord had called him to do, because he is the one who is the covenant of the people and the light to the Gentiles. May God bless you with his word.